Welcome to my den. I don't know about you, but I don't hear of many people who do the research for their potential clients and partners by going to TikTok. <laughs> At least, not most people who aren't native digitals. For a native digital or you know a Gen Zer like myself, I see TikTok as a powerful search engine. In fact, my generation will frequently, when visiting new cities or new places, go to TikTok to find the most interesting or creative restaurants. And honestly, TikTok has so much more potential than what it even looks like today. But when I share that opinion with most native analog leaders, they think I'm insane. But not today's guest. Today's guest is a native analog. He is not a Gen Zer, and yet he is crushing it on TikTok. And in fact, I did my research for him for this episode on his TikTok channel. He has over 120,000 followers on TikTok, and his past experience, which led to this amazing TikTok channel, was that he was the first CHRO of LinkedIn. That was really what he considers the cap of his HR career. And since then, he has worked with some phenomenal companies, including Google, Salesforce, the Royal Bank of Scotland, and many of the, the clients who have him on retainer or the ones that he has built cultures for are considered exceptional world-class performers by Wall Street Journal and Fortune magazine. It was so much fun to have this conversation with Steve today. But really, the purpose of this dialogue was to get granular about the future of work, specifically around the idea of a work quake, which also happens to be the title of Steve's new book. We talked today about everything from TikTok and the future of working and playing, to Steve's tips on salary negotiation, which are an example of the types of content he teaches on his TikTok channel. And then at the end, we shift into talking about micro-learning and the types of L&D strategies that actually resonate with Gen Z. Steve's book, as I mentioned, is called Workquake, Embracing the Aftershocks of COVID-19 to Create a Better Model for Working. And when I first read Steve's book, some things really stood out to me. Number one, this is one of the only books I know of that is thinking about the future in out-of-the-box ways instead of the same old leadership strategies that we hear or customer experience or employee experience strategies. Steve really tries to take us outside the box and ask us to reimagine a different way of thinking about culture, a different way of doing business, and really begs for our country and even other countries around the world to re-envision work as a whole. I hope you'll check out Work Quake. You can get it on Amazon. I would also suggest that you follow Steve on TikTok, LinkedIn, and go to his website if you find this interview interesting. Again, his name is Steve Cadigan, C-A-D-I-G-A-N. Before we dive into today's episode... I want to remind you that this series is brought to you by Overture Consulting and Analog Academy. 
And if you guys haven't recognized by now, Analog Academy is the place that native analogs go to school to become native digital fluent and learn how to recruit and retain that Gen Z talent, uh, that, that top 1%. We hold a free masterclass every second and fourth Thursday of each month where we teach you to become a top 1% employer of Gen Z. Can't afford to miss that masterclass? Come join and meet me face-to-face. -face. You can register at hannahgwilliams.com forward slash get that shit. And now hang on to your time machines and join me in my living room with the amazing Steve Cadigan. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a native digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one you pay to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today. I just heard an echo of your voice like, I tried again, tried again, tried again. <laughs> your, your face is like, oh no, <laughs> something bad's about to happen. I mean, my dog didn't eat anything. The, like, there's no, there's no movement here. My whole system is good. So I'm so sorry. I don't know what happened. Yeah, that would have been pretty great if, if your dog had eaten, <laughs> eaten the mic cord or something, something catastrophic had happened. But yeah. oh well. Yeah. I think you were saying that uh, you were talking about if you train someone and then they leave, right. um, what happens? And then I heard the, the echo, echo, echo. Mm -hmm. Okay. So do you want to just pick up and then you can sort of edit thread? Yeah. Sounds there. good. Okay. Or we might just leave all the, the lovely unedits in here because it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, I think just... Uh, you know, when I think about development and I think the way technology is driving organizations to maybe um, have a shorter term view on this, um, I think they're missing an opportunity. And, you know, the, the whole debate is, well, why am I going to develop Hannah if she's going to leave in a couple of years anyway? And then the other side of that debate is, well, why wouldn't you develop Hannah? Because she could be a source for good in the universe, uh, even if she goes and maybe she'll come back. And so... Um, but I, I do think the more I really get into the future work and, you know, that the book that you held up earlier is um, something I spent probably 10 years thinking about and two and a half ish years writing. But the more I get in and it's all about the future work, but the more I get into the future work, honestly, it to me is boiling down to it's the future of learning because the world's always going to change. New technology is still going to come in. The shelf life value of a skill that you have is shorter than it's ever been. So what's the greatest skill that you can build is the skill of learning new things quickly. hundred percent agree. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to ask you about micro learning or this mm -hmm. concept, because similar to what you just said, I see this all the time where companies are picking up the power of micro learning in terms of recruiting, right? Shorter mm -hmm. messaging, getting in front of candidates faster. But mm -hmm. I have, at least in my experience, and hopefully, you know, with your broad experience working with a wide variety of companies, I wondered if you had seen this. In my experience, 
L&D departments specifically, or, you know, the, the parts of a company that are dedicated to finding better ways for staff to learn and grow and develop have yet to adopt microlearning on a broad scale. So, you know, here's me as the native digital coming into work at a company, you know, and statistically speaking, I actually might be looking at a longer career at a company than a millennial, for example, because I'm craving stability. I'm craving somewhere that I can work long term, have good a good salary, etc. But the kicker being here, only if my leadership, my learning, my mentorship tracked at that company is something that speaks to me and and where I find I'm constantly learning and growing. And so mm-hmm. When let's say, you know, I'm looking for a job or my peers looking for a job and and I see company A that is immediately, you know, starting off day one, you know, I I come in, I'm onboarded, I start my training and I have the opportunity to learn in these micro moments. You know, maybe it's something like QR codes are stuck up around the physical space that I'm in. If it's a job that's, you know, say a physical therapy company, I'm I'm going to be on the floor, you know, learning QR codes. Maybe there's an opportunity to learn and those change day to day. And I can learn with little 30 second, one minute videos, a new skill or part of a new system versus mm-hmm. company B, where maybe their stru- you know, their structure of learning looks very different. Maybe it's more like a institutional way of learning. It looks a whole lot more like regular college. And here I am at 18, 19 years old, I've decided not to go to college because it just doesn't make sense anymore. So from from someone, you know, coming from my perspective, I'm thinking, gosh, why haven't more and more companies adapted to this concept of micro learning or snippet based learning inside of their corporations? Why are we only seeing it on the recruiting or marketing side? So what what, like what have you seen and, and where do you think that is that concept is headed? Yeah, this is great. I think organizations are still stuck, Hannah. Um, with an outdated perspective on talent and employees. And I think they're still stuck um, believing that, you know, you need to come here and have a career. You need to stay here for a long time. And they haven't adapted to, listen, some of the greatest companies in the world today, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, um, employees aren't staying more than two years um, as a median. And they're still creating enormous amounts of value. So if you're stuck thinking about someone staying a long time, you're not worried about quick bursts. You're thinking sort of in a, a longer longitudinal way about it. And as organizations start to recognize and pivot that, you know, there, there are ways of elevating the impact of their teams that look differently. I think they, they may learn to adapt and it may just be force of competition that drives that. But here's where I think the bigger, a better investment is for learning. And that is to move that department you refer to the learning and development department. That's no longer going to be the case. I believe in the future, I believe learning and development is going to be core business practice is going to f- be right there in the middle of leadership. It shouldn't be sitting out in that department. And by the way, over my career, when organizations would hit a bump in their revenue, who are the first people let go? It's the training department where we, we don't, it, it, yes. it was a nice to have, it's a supplemental benefit right? And that is core to your vitality of your com- competitive cap- capacity going forward. And so where I see this going, Hannah, is this is the shift in leaders. Leaders are going to have to build the learning into the job. It's not an extra thing you do on the side, but also fill your funnel. If you're 
if, if your needs are not not getting met on the job or, or we can't even, you know, um, fill your thirst to learn in your day to day. Well, here's a plethora of, you know, self-help stuff that you can get from Coursera, Udacity, Singularity, fill in the blank online learning platform. Go for it. You know, and some of this was created by your colleagues or people before you uh, just to help you, um, you know, fill that um, what we call sort of like the, you know, growth mindset. Just always being curious. And that's such a powerful uh, capacity, I think, that organizations are starting to recognize we need to hire for curiosity. And uh, I had a really great debate recently with someone who said, why do some organizations say they're in the talent acquisition business? They're not. They're in the experience acquisition. They want to know that you've done it, that you have the experience, not that you may have the raw talent to learn something way beyond what they think you might be capable of doing. Right. And so... And this is truly the, it's a little bit fuzzy right now. It feels less firm and graspable for a lot of organizations. So, um, so they're stuck, you know, and the ones that get it are the ones who are in businesses that are changing really fast. And the ones that don't are ones that have a captive audience. Let's just take some sort of government um, related organization that has a captive audience because it's statutorily required by the government. You have to do it this way and they're going to have business forever. So they don't have a compelling need to sort of change their business model. Um, they're going to be stuck in old ways of thinking about it. So there, there's a moment now where organizations can really learn how to pivot this. And I think not that the, Hey, here's a quick 30, you know, second, three minute, five minute thing to do. I think what a lot of us did during the pandemic was we experimented with all these learning platforms. I don't know about you, but I was like signing up for all these things like masterclass and Coursera offered all this stuff for free. Like, I just want to see like, what's that like? Um, and not necessarily anything related to my work. Just, I'm curious. At one point I was curious, like, is there really good, like history of the Beatles? Like I, like I love their stuff, but there's all these stories I want to know. And sure enough, there was some professor in like Appalachian State University who was offering this like really interesting course on Beatles history. And I think that's, um, you know, and, and that's another feature of this that we are too, I think sometimes we're too narrow minded in thinking about, you know, oh, our training should just be, you know, clearly tied to a career upside. And I think we're missing out on a lot of thinking creatively by just filling your mind with different stuff. First of all, I love how you love the Beatles because I do too. <laughs> I'm a big music geek, but I, I actually, in um, I guess this was right before COVID, got to see the Beatles Cirque du Soleil that they're doing in Vegas right now. Have you yeah, seen? I've have seen, you seen it. That? I've seen it. Absolutely. It was Twice. phenomenal. <laughs> Twice. <laughs> yeah. Do you have, do you have a favorite Beatles song? Oh, no, I mean that experience of that. You know, for my generation, they were a little bit before my generation even. Um, you know, I sort of like learned to listen to music probably, I would say mid seventies and they were starting, you know, maybe they were still a band. I don't think so. Um, but yeah, just the, just the whole experience of it. But yeah, I have so many favorite songs and some of them I'm still discovering. Did you see the movie yesterday by any yes, chance? I did. What was that like for you? You know, I thought the concept was so creative mm -hmm. compared to so many of the other movies that, you know, the one on Freddie Mercury, where they re they tried to recreate a lot of his life. I loved the reimagining of, you know, what would happen if yeah. the Beatles, you know, had never existed mm -hmm. and, or, you know, if everyone forgot and then we mm -hmm. came back. So he here's my um, reaction to the movie. 
I loved the concept. And at the same time, here's my skeptic brain. As you get to know me, Steve, you'll, you'll find this out. But my skeptic brain as someone who tried to make a career out of the music industry when I was a teenager was thinking, oh my gosh, it is not just about the music. It is the marketing. You know, it, you can't just be successful because the songs are so great. You have to have great marketing, you know, great publicity. You have to have all the right ingredients. So I was watching it thinking, oh, wouldn't this be so nice? This is like utopia if the Beatles, you know, if you got to memorize all their music and brought it back. But anyway, it was it was a really good movie. Yeah. How about and, you? Well, for me, what was captured, I, I you know, I didn't, I didn't think of this, but I read a review about this that said, um, you listen to that music, like almost like it was the first time you heard it. And it seemed even more beautiful because of the freshness of how that was delivered. Like when he does yesterday, right in the beginning, his friend's like, wow, that was beautiful. How did, you know, where did, did you write that song? He's like, come on, you guys are messing with me. Right. And it was such a, and, and, and hearing it that way just felt so new and so different. I think that was just to your point, the, novelty of how they approached the whole concept was really, really cool. And then they did throw in, you know, no smoking, smoking didn't exist and all of some other little things uh, in various parts that were kind of fun too. Oh, it was so great. And the part <clears throat> I, I laughed so hard when he went to um, Russia and sang USSR. <laughs> and yeah, just, yeah. Every, yeah. just everyone's like, yeah. oh, my gosh, you can, you know, change up this whole thing. And it wasn't that clever to throw in, you know, USSR, write a song just for this part of the tour. And I thought, yeah, that's brilliant because, you know, you're, you listen to the Beatles songs and you don't yeah. actively think oh gosh, this is about, you know, a particular country or particular topic, or it mm. would speak more, you know, speak to or resonate more with a certain people group, but yeah. it was brilliant. And, and they threw in a sarcastic comment by Ed Sheeran. Do you remember that one? And it's like, yeah, that's really neat because they haven't used that term USSR since before you were born, yes. that, that you would pull that into your song. Like that was really cool. <laughs> Exactly. And mm -hmm. speaking of Ed Sheeran and, and it seems like there's a couple of celebrities making those cameo appearances in other shows now lately, which has just been so fun, but yeah. that's a completely different topic. Um, I, it is, it is and it isn't. I mean, the, yeah. the crossover of, you know, music and uh, media and you know, there've even been some TikTok influencers showing up in commercial Super Bowl commercials, right? And some other things like that. They're I mean, again, back to the one of the original things you and I talked about, which is this crossover experimentation and just, you know, tr trying to play this. Like if I didn't have my teenagers here connecting the dots for me sometimes, like these uh the the Paul brothers, I don't know if you follow the the Paul brothers, like Jake Paul and like one of these guys was like a I think he was an Instagram hit or a YouTube hit. And then now he's into boxing and I'm like, what, what's going And then how they promote all this is so interesting. And my kids are following it pretty closely so they can explain the anatomy of like, how did this person go from that to this to now he's in a boxing ring fighting for millions and millions of dollars? Like how did yes. that happen? Yeah, Andy, I don't know if you follow um, this duo on TikTok too, but there's a, there's a grandma and her grandchild's son, and they do hilarious uh, product reviews. And mm -hmm. I, do you know who I'm talking about? No. Find no. it. I'm I will sure have to I've seen, I'm sure I may, I may have seen it because I'm on TikTok almost every day now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're like one of one of the few people who has to be now. 
Um, so she is, I, I need to find their channel. It's hilarious. Uh-huh. But she basically, so it, she's probably, the, the grandmother is like in her probably late 80s. Mm-hmm. And she is absolutely hilarious. But she'll do these, you know, grandma's reviews of the 10 best things she found on Amazon. And it is, it's just, you know, shit stuff. Just hilariously, mm-hmm. you know, um, oh gosh, like a fart machine or just, just these mm-hmm. weird hokey things. And some of yeah. them are actually really useful, but some of them are su- super funny. Mm-hmm. But the point being... The grandson who was the visionary behind this whole channel, he went on Shark Tank recently and he had gotten into a partnership, a business partnership with someone else who was very successful in business. Mm -hmm. And he was going to provide the social media part. Mm -hmm. He did not end up getting a deal with the sharks because they overvalued their company or supposedly overvalued. But his point was when he came into the tank, he basically said the reason the valuation is whatever they were saying it was is because as soon as I post this product on our channel, like we haven't released yet, as soon as I post this product, I can guarantee that there will be sales between 20 and $50 million in one video. And he based, this was the presentation, but here's the thing, none of the sharks got it. None of them understood Mm -hmm. the power that a single TikTok video can have when the entire purpose of the channel is comedy right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's complete comedy, but people are going and buying these products that this, that the grandma reviews because she's absolutely hysterical. Mm-hmm. So I just thought that was interesting because, you know, you watch Kevin O'Leary. I know you, you just did a reaction video to mm-hmm. one of his interviews with Bill Mayer. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was interesting because Kevin O'Leary seems to get like this concept now of how people need want flexibility and they mm-hmm. want to work from home and they want all these yeah. things. But in that moment, in the tank, they didn't understand the the power of this influencer content and this way of approaching product sales that is so different from yeah. infomercials or, you know, any of the things that that other generations might be used to. Right. So I just thought that was fascinating. Yeah. And I think there's there's a magnetism to that, Hannah, that is drawing lots of different generations to the TikTok platform. I mean, I, there are a ton of people, you know, I'm my, on the backside of my fifties. Now there are a ton of people, my age and older there. Uh, but I get enormous wisdom from all, all ages, you know, and, uh, one of the, the, I mean, they're just countless ones and I love the product reviews, but I also love just sort of life uh, perspectives or just re, re, the ones that I love the most a reality check. Like, uh, there's one, there's one woman who does a series on the parent who's, um, always behaving badly, bragging about her kids at sporting events and having, you know, been on the sidelines or coaching my kids for years and years and just seeing unbelievably bad behavior by parents, like again and again and again, if she just captures that persona that you just want to strangle of, you know, someone who's just passively aggressively like cutting you, cutting your family. Oh, you don't have a hitting coach for your son. I mean, so you don't really think they're going to have much of a future. Oh, oh, you know, oh, you know, and it's just like all the, and it just, so I sent it to my friend, like, you got to see this woman. She is killing it. But I think it captures, there's people who can really capture something better than you can, which is what I love about so many of the, uh, of the, of the videos. And that's why I think it's got such a unique and why so many other of the platforms are trying to copy what, uh, what TikTok's been able to do so far very well. 
So true. And it makes me think of something you talked about in your book, but also going back to something you said earlier, Mm -hmm. um, this idea of, you know, as we've seen the change and the shift and people trying to copy what's happening on TikTok, we also see a lot of either copying or just for almost this idea, in, at least what I see in corporate America, of trying to prevent what happened in these last two years from continuing in its momentum. So when I read Workquake, you talked about this concept of corporate working. Is that how you say it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. the combination of gig working or flex working with within corporations. So, but I wanted to kind of harken back to what you said a second ago, which is you were talking about you know, government entities that have been, as an example, slow to change or uh, keep coming back to this, you know, these old ways of doing things. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask you about how the concept of corporal working, and you can explain what that is, you know, in your words in a second, but this concept of corporal working and how it relates to companies as we see like an increase in public and private partnerships. You know, because we're seeing in terms of I I haven't looked at the latest statistics here, but I believe we're to a point where public entities or publicly funded entities, at least in America, are now at 51 percent of of the total number of jobs in the country. Right. And private is is actually under 50 percent, 49 ish percent. Mm -hmm. So my question is, like, when we see more and more companies having to forge these public and private partnerships in terms of, you know, employees working together and funding and all these projects coming together. What are, what are those types of companies going to do when suddenly we have corporate working now involved too, when we've got freelance workers spread out and people working from different locations and, and, you know, for, for, for different purposes, Mm -hmm. what, what do you think is, is the future of that? And how can those public private partnerships adapt? Wow, Hannah, this is really a very fun topic for me. And I love how you framed this. I think, and I've never really, these are going to be the first times, uh, the first time for me that these words are going to come out of my lips, but it won't be the last. I think we are about ready to see the death of employees as we knew it, as we've defined it. Like employee, you know, meaning fully dedicated to you, working for you. I think it's almost over. And I think what we're going to start to see is people having portfolios of projects. You know, what what I think the biggest barrier right now, Hannah, to the proliferation of gig workers at large is um, statutory infrastructure. And by that, I mean health insurance. By that, I mean trying to get a home loan or refinance your home loan when you don't have an employer is near impossible. We have built... Most progressive economies in the world with the foundation of you work for somebody else. So I need to see your paycheck stub. And that has been completely um, pressurized by the pandemic. So, for example, Germany just came out a few months ago and said, we're going to hire 400 to 500,000 knowledge workers outside of Germany or our economy's at risk. Portugal said, hey, if you're stuck here during the pandemic, we will expedite your um, your circumstances such that you will be considered a de facto Portuguese citizen um, and you're going to have tax beneficial treatment because we want love for you to stay here if you're a knowledge worker. Canada, similarly, we're going to invite 500,000 knowledge workers and we're going to process you super fast through our our you know regulatory system 
to give you either a, the equivalent of what we would call a green card here in the U.S. or something like that to allow you to, to work and, and contribute. That is the biggest block right now and why people still think about employees because of this def default, I call it, sort of stuck in proprietary, you know, it's a, it's a patent lawyer's um, nightmare come true or what's a, what's a property right lawyer's nightmare come true that people are not fully dedicated. You know, I've signed agreements as a new hire in my past that said, if you think of something while you're working here, we own it. I'm like, what? You know, and now we're starting to see organizations like big ones, like Unilever, not seen as progressive, very progressive. And then Canva was a Nora, sort of like a big market leader. They're saying, hey, candidate, here's two offers. Do you want to be a contractor, gig worker, or do you want to be an employee? Up to you. We don't care. We just want you adding value because you are a rock star. And that is already sort of like the beginning of the end of employees as we knew it. And maybe that's going to be a blog that I need to put out there because that what other alternatives are there? And so here's what I'm trying to tell leaders today. What is your job? Your job is to create value. You believe you need a fully dedicated, 100% committed employee to you to create that value. Is that really necessary? No, it's not. And what happened during the pandemic, Hannah, and I don't have the data to, to say this is fact, but my instinct is, is blinking red. I know this has happened, which is most organizations shrunk their core employees and grew their contingent independent contractor staff because it's more fungible. When things are tough, if I have to let an employee go, it's going to cost me. It's going to be a brand hit. But if I let a contractor go, well, we always knew it was going to be temporary anyway. And in this world where I can't predict the certainty of my business in the future, I want more people like that that can come and go. And no feelings are hurt. Like we both know, you know, we could break up and it's going to happen. It's part it's we start with that instead of starting with, hey, you commit to stay here a long time and I commit to employ you a long time. We both know it's bullshit. And you may leave anytime and I may fire you at any time, but let's have this false understanding to begin our relationship on something that's really not true. And that's the introduction of my book, which is like, why do we have these fake agreements that are the basis of our employment relationship? So that's where I think it's going in. I think you, you led me there through how you frame the question, like it's going to be over. And not only that, you want to get really crazy. We're going to see companies loaning their employees to other organizations and other industries. We've got a downturn. Uh, it's a slow port a year at the holidays. Oh, guess what? Nordstrom needs a ton of people. You're going to go work for Nordstrom. We're going to loan you out there. You can decide not to, and we'll put you on furlough or we've got you, you know, not, we're not just letting you go. We're like giving you another job, like right over there. And all your benefits will transport for the time that you work for them. We're going to see, that's a very basic example, but we're going to see more, you know, Europe's had this, uh, they, they call it a secondment that we're going to loan you out. I mean, look at, professional sports have been doing this for years. Like maybe we're going to see professional trades, <laughs> you know, not just like the New York Knicks to the Brooklyn Nets, but maybe we're going to see like, Hey, you're going to go from Procter and Gamble. Or we're going to trade you over there to Unilever for two new, you know, uh, toilet paper markets or something. I don't know, but I'm, I'm not going to be surprised if that starts to happen because this whole one person doing one thing for you forever, is just broken. Right. So, so true. <laughs> I had myself on mute, but if I was not on mute, you would have heard me shouting, yes, yes, yes. Like, seriously, mm. the, yeah. everything you just said is something that to a native digital, we're thinking 
why doesn't this fucking already exist? Like, why isn't yeah. that the starting premise? Right. Cause when I, when I walk into a job, if my mm. manager doesn't say, Hey, Hannah, I know you are going to give us 150% effort every single day you're here, but I know you're going to leave at some point. You know what? Yeah. You're going to leave at some point. So how do I help best support you while you're here with us? Like, mm. why isn't that the conversation off the bat instead of sign all these contracts that give your life away? <laughs> hey, how, you know, what's your social security number? What's your credit card number? <laughs> you know, yeah. like that's how it feels. Right. Right. So, okay, so, wait, I don't want to, I don't want to interrupt you, but I do have to ask you before we bounce off this concept stuff of sure. loaning out employees. So if I'm a leader listening to this, or I'm a business owner listening to this and you say loan out employees, and this is probably a concept I've never even considered, right? Because every organization, if there's take hospitality, for mm -hmm. example, as an industry, what are they used to hiring, you know, the H1B visa workers having a time during the year, they're usually furloughing, you know, for me in my hometown, which is very hospitality driven, that time is January through beginning of March, all the workers go on furlough, they don't get benefits during that time, they're just on furlough with the understanding that they're going to be, you know, they kind of pick back up where they leave off in March or April. So What's the benefit? To, let's take that illustration. Let's not touch a you know hourly employee per se. Let's think about say engineers as an example. Yeah. Engineers, architects. What mm -hmm. what do you think that could look like if those organizations start loaning out their staff? Let me tell you a story of which I touch on a little bit in my book when I was working at Electronic Arts. So the video game industry is a great industry to to look at from the cyclical business development a business pr product development point of view, which is there are, I don't know, let's say 15 core areas of game development. You know, there's the concept, then there's pre-production, then there's, you know, there's a sound team, there's a video team, there's an engineering, you know, there's it, when you build a game, it passes through different people with different levels of expertise in your game studio. Well, once the game has passed through your pre-production team, what are they going to do? They got nothing to do. Like I've done my job, right? So then you're faced with a situation which I confronted one time when I visited a studio outside of London called Criterion, uh, and they made one of my one of my favorite games, uh, and and a lot of the um, the the car racing Need for Speed. But Criterion is a studio, and they made a game called Burnout Paradise. And I went to go visit their studio head, Fiona. I said, Fiona, I've never been here before. Like, tell me what's on your mind. She goes, Steve. I worry about the work I don't have for my people more than I worry about the work that I do have for my people. I said, break that down for me. I don't know what you're talking about. She says, if I don't keep my people busy, they're going to leave. So I need to come up with another game to keep them busy. Otherwise they're going to go. And so, you know, what if, the, so there's a void of time, right? And so here's the problem that electronic arts and any other video game company faces with really good talent if the production cycle passes through different departments and once it's passed, someone's got nothing to do. What do you do? I'm going to build another game. That's not a good reason to build a game. Good reason to build a game is I'm going to create something massively value. I'm going to innovate. Now I'm just looking to fill something so I don't lose someone. That's wrong. It's broken, right? You want to, you want to give someone work because you're trying to build something massively valuable. So the Hollywood model is come here, we'll make a project, and then you go, and we both know it's just temporary. Here's a contract, and we're done. 
um, where when I proposed this model to EA, hey, we should just go the Hollywood model. We're stressed out. We, you know, we're going to live. And they're like, no, Steve, we can't do that. Well, why is that? Because the best people might not want to come back. And I'm like, well, that's on us. We got to be the place they want to come to, that we're going to treat people, game developers better than anywhere else. That that's a challenge that we should be able to win because we are, you know, we're a good place. We've got a great culture. We got great opportunities for people like let's win against good competition. Let's not keep the people here because they don't have a choice. You know, that's not a good motivator. Right. And so, you know, I think um, big companies do this. They just call it job rotation. You know, they're loaning people out. Um, but the other thing that you're fighting against in a situation like this is human nature. So Hannah, let's say you're a senior executive in a sales organization and I come to you and say, Hey Hannah, I'm Steve from HR. Listen, we're doing this whole talent movement thing. Can you give me three of your best people? Cause we're going to go put them in Asia for a few years. And it's going to be a really good development experience. What motivation do you have to really give me your three best people? Because you might not make your bonus. You might not get home on weekends anymore because you're going to have to step up and close deals. You're going to be busy having to hire new people. You're not motivated to do that. And even if I tell you, oh, you know, talent development is going to be more important than your sales. You're going, mm -mm. I get paid on sales. You take my three best people. Why would I do that? You know, and, and then you would say, well, give me three great people like that. And then you're going to not know if the source of those three great people is really being, you know, honest and giving the great people. So there's some barriers to that, I think, because everyone's going to think, oh, you're going to loan me people. They're going to be your dogs that you, you're too afraid to fire and you're going to give me low performers. Right. And I've seen managers who game the system like that. So it's a, it's a tricky notion, but if the spirit is the longer, you're, the more you develop people, the longer they'll stay, it fits that criteria, I think, right. Of giving people, I think what people want is career adventures. They don't want job security. You know, they want really to be made better for tomorrow. hundred percent. And I mean, we're already seeing a similar type of model that's existed in certain industries. I mean, take the luxury country club industry, for example. General managers of those country clubs typically leave a club after a year and a half to two years, and they're bouncing all over the country. It's almost like a <clears throat> excuse me, a GM on loan. Mm -hmm. Healthcare has been doing this for forever as well, where they're mm -hmm. trying to fill staffing needs by essentially loaning, you know, mm -hmm. doctors or nurses from a particular area to another to get another, you know, segment started or whatever the case might be. So what I love about this conversation, though, is you're not saying here's all the answers. Here's a model. What you're saying is let's think beyond what's right in front of us. <laughs> so instead mm -hmm. of us looking down at our shoes and saying, that's the future. We actually need to look down the football field and say, where's the ball headed? You know, where is it getting thrown instead right. of throwing it right at our feet? Because that's what I feel like in my limited experience, you know, me at 24, having been in corporate America for five years, when I, what I saw happening in corporate America before, you know, here's me as an example, deciding to break off and help solve the problems from the outside because they weren't being solved on the inside. Mm -hmm. This is the type of visioning that absolutely 100% needs to start happening. And I mean, you talked about this in WorkQuake as well, where you're talking about the, the organization, the new organization 
needs to have a contrarian figure. You can't just make a decision with everyone agreeing, right? Mm -hmm. And I loved that illustration you gave about how in Israel was it that mm-hmm. if if every person on a on a board in a trial or if every judge comes to the same conclusion they all say this person is guilty 100% then they overrule it right they they say the person is not guilty because you can't have a one you can't have 100% right. agreement or something's yeah. flawed yeah the 10th man concept mm-hmm. yes yeah. and that concept has to be how we think about mm-hmm. life and work and planning and visioning. Um, I, I just, I love that so much. So, <laughs> so much. Cool. Um, I know you've got to run for, for to jump on a, a board meeting, right? <laughs> so well, me back. let's continue the let's conversation because there's so many other areas I want to dive in with you and I would love to, you know, explore that, but let's, let's put this out there and, and then um, see what questions come in and maybe next time we can, cover some more territory, but thank you so much for having me, Anna. Thank you, Steve. It's great to meet you. And I so admire being with someone else who's a visionary. We can be on different generational spectrums and still say, where are we headed and still make progress. And I love that. 100%. Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you're looking to connect and talk more about attracting and retaining native digitals, you can reach me at hannahgwilliams.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.